Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hello and welcome to The Practice Podcast. I'm Jeff Bast. Hi, Jeff Bast. This is Brett Amron. Welcome. And today I'm super excited. We are super excited. Why? Yeah. We have an awesome guest here today with us on our podcast. His name is Peter Clock. Peter is one of our top lawyers that work at this firm. He might be the top. Oh, wow. I mean, well, because he's sitting in the seat today. Right, I'm going to say right, that, exactly. right? Yeah, but those of you that are listening, those few of you that are listening, are going to get to know Peter very well today. Those of you who have not interacted with him yet. And if you haven't, it'll be a real treat to learn about him. But once you do interact with him, you'll recognize what we see in him as being not only a talented lawyer, but a phenomenal person as well. Peter Clock, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brett. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here today. You know, I'm honored to be a guest on the podcast with such an extended viewership. Oh, boy. Oh, is that sarcasm? That's, wow. <laughs> Jeez, just dove right in, didn't he? <laughs> My goodness. I'm happy to be one of the top in a 11-person firm. <laughs> <laughs> He's really yeah. hammering us already. I mean... This is going to be an interesting interview today. Should we start over, you think? No, I think we should keep this recording for history. We can refer back to it, I think, at an appropriate time. <laughs> Peter, why don't you tell our guests, some of whom might not know you, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, who you are. Thank you. I'd be happy to. I was born and raised in Miami. Jeff, I know you were. Yeah. Brad, I know you were. Not we're not. No, and I'm thankful for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, born and raised in Miami. Uh, one of the uh, rare non-Hispanics in Miami. I grew up in a a family of lawyers. Both of my parents are lawyers. And I think I was actually in my more extended family. I was the seventh or the eighth person to become a lawyer. Oh so my God. I knew from a very young age that I did not want to become a lawyer. <laughs> and yet <laughs> here you are. You. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it didn't go well. Right, right. So how'd you end up, why'd you become a lawyer? I had the pleasure of graduating from undergrad in the summer of 2008. Mm, and, yes, uh, good time. Yeah. <laughs> So leading up to that, I was an economics major in college, and I had interned with Morgan Stanley down here in Miami, and I was all set to join their private wealth management analyst program, which just you know, evaporated in 2008. Mm. And so I was sort of adrift for a minute, and my father had, at that point, left big law and joined a boutique practice in Coral Gables, and he convinced me to come and work for him because I had spent probably three months interviewing with other banks in New York. And I realized very quickly that I did not really like the financial industry. I just actually had a really wonderful experience interning for this private wealth management team with Morgan Stanley in Miami. And the team is actually still at Morgan Stanley in Miami. Really great group of people, very sort of family-oriented environment. I got to, I guess you'd call it like a skewed perception of what finance was like. So when I went to New York and I started interviewing with J.P. Morgan, I interviewed with Goldman Sachs, I actually ended up getting an offer from J.P. Morgan. And I realized that like it was not a place that I wanted to be. And so I came back to Miami and my father was like, well, what are you going to do? So he basically convinced me to come and work for him as a paralegal. <laughs> nice. Just from that, you went to law school? You'd... Yeah. 
Sorry. <laughs> no, it's all right. So, Fast forward. So, right. Yeah. And now I'm a lawyer. And you even then, you know, I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. But at the time, this was late 2008, early 2009. My father was involved in a case on behalf of a client who's a very big sugarcane production company in Florida. It's actually the largest privately held sugarcane corporation in the world. And they were fighting with the state of Florida over a planned issuance of certificates of participation, which are basically the state of Florida issues bonds to uh, build out public projects. But the plan was effectively the state was going to buy like a billion dollars worth of a competitor's land and then lease it back to the competitor at less than market value. And the supposed public purpose was that at some point in the future, they would take the land out of production and build reservoirs in the Everglades and water treatment facilities, which is... Hold on. Is there going to be a test about this uh, <laughs> case at the end? Is this? Are we having a moot court? Yeah, I know. I was getting into the weeds. No, this case is what... Said, what's yeah. Yeah. Well, did that just go right over your head? I said <laughs> weed. We're talking about the Everglades. And you oh, said I got you. Yeah. Anyway. Sorry. Uh, all right. So you worked on a really interesting case yeah. with really interesting issues and facts. Yeah. And that, and the fact that you were... The only, at that point, seems like one of the only non-lawyers in your family decided, <laughs> despite that, despite seeing all of that and what they've gone through, went to law school anyway. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, it impressed upon me. I mean, being able to stop a state from issuing nearly $2 billion of certificates of participation convinced me that lawyers really are sort of the movers and shakers very often in our society. And it's funny, too, because I should have realized that much sooner because my father was actually involved in the Bush versus Gore Mm-hmm. campaign. Yeah. He represented Catherine Harris during that. And so he, he had previously argued in front wow. of the Supreme Court and got Catherine Harris's decision to stop the recount upheld. So that by itself probably should have convinced me that. Wow. Dropping names. <laughs> Catherine Harris. There's a name that hasn't been heard in quite a long time. That's <laughs> yeah. very impressive. So tell us, what are holidays like with that many lawyers? <laughs> <laughs> we have a few in my family and I'm usually the one that's sitting in the corner. I don't like to engage and so I'll just sit there because we do this for a living, right? right, right. <laughs> you can't walk away from that when you have that many lawyers in the family. There's definitely a certain amount of shop talk whenever the extended family gets together. But my extended family is absolutely gigantic. I mean, my father is the oldest of eight. He's got seven younger sisters. Wow, I have wow. 21 first cousins, somewhere between 19 and 21 first cousins. <laughs> and on any given day, it could be 19, it could be 21. Right? So most of them are married. Most of them have kids now. So, I mean, just a truly massive extended family. So there's plenty of people you can run to when you're trying to avoid talking about your job. That's probably fun, though. Big families are fun. I'm one of five, and I thought that was a big family. So that's small compared to what you had. So let's get back to being a lawyer. You went to law school, obviously, and then out of law school, you went to do a federal clerkship. I actually had the opportunity to intern for Judge King in the Southern District of Florida while I was in law school. And I did that, I think it was during the second semester of my second year. And I was immediately just like completely floored by his clerks. He had this really incredible group of clerks at the time. It was Will Snyder, Yara Lorenzo, and Stephanie McAllister, and just really just brilliant people. And I was like awed by them. I saw them doing their job every day, and I knew I couldn't do that job. You know, I knew that they were so far ahead of me. But I thought if I could aspire to that and gain that ability, that that would really be incredible. And so during my third year, I, I said, why not? I'll just apply to Judge King and see if he'll take me as a clerk. And Judge King got back to me and he said, I'm sorry. And I was, you know, immediately heartbroken. He said, I'm sorry, I can't take you next year. You'll have to wait a year. So that made me extremely happy. But I worked for my father's firm all through law school. 
And then I continued working there as an associate for one year after law school. And then I jumped into the clerkship after that when the space opened up. Did you have a sense, maybe it was when you started working with your dad as a paralegal or even as a law clerk, did you have a sense that you wanted to do litigation or did you think maybe based on your economics background, you want to do something different? I think I always knew that I wanted to do litigation. I found going into court exciting and I thought that was something that I definitely wanted to do. So at some point, obviously, in, uh, along the way, you learned how to write because you're very good at that. You're a very good writer. You can take issues and you can condense it down into pretty straightforward arguments and do a very good job of that. So where do you think those seeds that obviously you had inside of you, when did they start to come out and how did that happen? My mother was actually an English teacher before she became a lawyer. Mm. And so just growing up, going through middle school and high school, any paper that I ever wrote, I would sit down with an English teacher and go over it like almost <laughs> line by line. Yep. And my mother's like, is there a comma missing here? You know, that <laughs> the type Oxford of comma? Or, right. right yeah. Yeah. And so I think I had, even before I got to law school, I, I had a very strong writing ability. And law school does a good job of hammering out the floweriness in your writing and getting mm-hmm. you to just sort of focus on the issues, and use five words instead of nine, that type of thing. But when it comes to actually crafting arguments that are going to be persuasive, I think really the clerkship is what really made the difference for me. And a big part of that is just working with Judge King. And I got to work with Judge King for almost four years, I think. No, it was actually, it was like about four years on the nose. And having basically, it was almost like going through a, a PhD or, you know, like a master class in legal writing because I would, on a daily basis, be writing orders and submitting them. Well, we'd go through a process where Judge King would tell me what he wants an order to say, of course. Mm -hmm. And then I would draft an order and submit it to Judge King. And I would get it back initially back with writing all over it, you know, change this, fix this, write this this way. And I think, as you guys have probably seen as well, you know, I started tailoring my writing to match what I knew he liked. And so over time, I just sort of adopted Judge King's style of writing. And I think that has a tremendous impact in writing things that are concise and to the point and writing what judges, I think, want to see. Right. And typically when we're writing, I think writing is one of those things where you have to tailor it to the reader. But typically when we're writing legal papers, we are writing for the judge, ideally. I mean, if it's a bench matter, it's not a memo for a client or something like that. But you learn to a client, right? I mean, you want it to be straightforward and concise and so that they can understand it. And all too often we get pleadings that come in and we read them and either... They go in circles or like you said, they use nine words or sometimes a hundred words and they can use five, right? Right. And I find that people like to use big words to make themselves sound smarter when in reality, it muddles the argument a bit, no? Absolutely. Yeah. Another part of it as well, and and I think it's important with clients as well, is you want to present things. You know, obviously you want to be persuasive when you're writing to the court, but You also need to be objective about how you evaluate things, especially when you're talking to a client about something, because you don't want to basically sell your client on something that you can't deliver on. And so you need to objectively evaluate what the law says, what your position is and what the other side's position is. And you need to present that in a way to the client that's fair so they can really evaluate what their options are, what their likelihood of success is. And, And as we all know, you know, you also have to make sure you tell the client that crazy things happen in litigation. You know, you can be completely in the right and lose. Yeah. So what's your process generally? I mean, we don't have to go too far into the weeds and the details on it, but what's your process generally when you have to either prepare an affirmative 
pleading like a motion or an initial appellate brief or a response, right? Like what's your general process? Share that with us. So, you know, one of the things that Judge King impressed upon me pretty early on is, you know, he told me one of the really big advantages that you have as a young lawyer, as compared with a lawyer with a lot more experience, is that young lawyers tend to be better about the record in a case. So like whether you're dealing with an appeal or you're dealing with a motion for summary judgment, young lawyers tend to have a better ability to sort of grasp the complete record and not forget about little things. So that's something that I always made sure to focus on because he said, you know, that's sort of like an inherent edge that you have. So I thought, well, that's something that I really need to make sure that I use because you're at a disadvantage when you're arguing against a lawyer who's been doing this for 15 years and maybe they've got a lot of experience and they're a fantastic lawyer, Mm -hmm. but maybe your memory's a little bit better. So (laughs) my process Generally, you know, I want to make sure that I read everything. And that was something else that Judge King impressed upon me. He said, you need to read everything. So if you're going to be preparing a motion for summary judgment, you should look back into the case and read any relevant pleading from beginning to end. Look at all of the exhibits from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. And that sort of informs that grasp of the record. And then from there, you can make sure that you're building something that takes everything into account. The evidence, the depot transcripts. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And never forget the operative pleading. Right. Never forget that. Yeah. Yeah. So taking all of that, right. It sounds like obviously your time as a law clerk was super important and formative, right. To the point where you are today. Are there like a few things that you can point to us that you would say really today I fall back. I know you've talked about a little bit about the writing and some of the things that judge King told you, but what are you falling back on today to help you in your practice as a private lawyer, private practitioner, And then obviously planning for the future, right? And your growth as an attorney. One of the things I think has been really helpful for me, both when I first stepped out of the clerkship into the firm and I was dealing with you all, with the partners, and then eventually dealing with clients as well, is the process that we had in chambers was once a motion was fully ripe, you know, you've got your motion, response, your reply. The process that we had in chambers was you as the law clerk, if that motion fell on your side of the docket, you would review everything. And then we met with Judge King every day. So you'd come into his chambers and you'd say, Judge, here's this motion to dismiss. It's now fully ripe. Mm-hmm. And he'd say, all right, tell me about it. So you would tell him about the pleadings, tell him about the motion to dismiss and what your take on the law was. You'd say, the plaintiff's arguing this in response. The defendant's arguing it should be dismissed for this reason. And Judge King would say, okay, well, what do you think? Judge King has always viewed clerkships as teaching experiences for lawyers. And for that reason, actually, he never really had career clerks because he wanted to always cycle through clerks. So he would ask, you know, basically tell me what you think we should do here. And then often, I guess more often in the beginning, he would say, okay, I appreciate that, but here's the reason why you're a little bit off and here's what I'm going to (laughs) do. He wears the robe. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. Only one of you was wearing a robe. Right. (laughs) And over time, you know, I'd get better. And I think over time I was able to basically nail the issues and he would say, oh, that's very good. I agree. Let's write it up that way. What that taught me very early on is that you need to not only be able to discuss the issues, but you need to present a solution. And so that I thought was very helpful when I first started dealing with both of you. And, you know, I guess I didn't work with Scott right away, but when dealing with Scott as well is I would come in and say like, here's our issues. Here's what I think we should do. And I think that is extremely helpful when you're in a supervisory position, because otherwise you've got people who are just coming to you with problems and asking you to solve them. Right. And so I think that by itself was a very important takeaway. I think that has been very helpful in my practice. Yeah. And with dealing with clients as well, you know, you can't just tell the clients, well, here's what the law says. 
I'm yeah. not really sure what's going to happen. Right. <laughs> a lot of people here in this office have heard us say, don't ever send something to the client and say, what do you think or what should we do? They come to us for advice. So we can make a recommendation and then ask them if they agree with that recommendation, but we shouldn't be asking our clients, what should we do or what do you want to do? And then for the same reason, we also tell our people, don't come to me with a question unless you have a proposed answer. I'll tell you if it's the right answer or if I agree with that answer, but don't just come and ask a question yeah. unless you have a yeah. formed answer. I wanted to ask you one question about something you mentioned. You said Judge King doesn't hire career law clerks, but you clerked there for four years. <laughs> so can you explain that? He uh, was just hanging around. He wouldn't leave. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, Judge King came in every day and he's like, what? Peter. <laughs> yeah. You're still here? Yeah. Right. So actually, I was initially hired just for a one-year term clerkship, which was Judge King's practice. And as I got towards the end of my first year, he asked if I would stay for a second year. And I thought, yeah, absolutely. That's great. And I was learning so much. I was watching civil and criminal trials you know, regularly, traveling down to Key West because Judge King actually sits in both Miami and Key West. So once a month. One of your or, favorite places? Yeah, I love Or them. perhaps your favorite place? Perhaps. <laughs> yeah, perhaps indeed. You know, it was a no-brainer for me. I knew I wanted to stay for a second year. And then he just kept asking me to stay. <laughs> so I just, I kept going with it. And then I think after my third year, he told me, you're doing such a great job. I'd like you to stay and you can stay as long as you want. He's like, you know, honestly, I don't expect you to be a true career clerk, right. but stay, start looking around at the market. If you see something you like at a firm, that's a great fit, right. go ahead and take it. And you know, you can leave whenever you want. And so that didn't happen. So then you ended up here. <laughs> Um, yeah. Nah, just of course. So at that time, when you decided to make the transition, what led you to think, okay, you know what, four years, I've been here at the time, maybe you made a decision three and a half years in. Right. What did you feel like, hey, you know what, maybe the next step I feel like I want to do, right? Because clearly, from what we know about you and what you're talking about here today, I mean, you really enjoyed your time with Judge King. It mm -hmm. sounds like it was really a formative process. He sounds like an amazing judge to clerk for. And I want to get back to clerking. I know we wanted to talk about that too and the benefits of clerking. But clearly from this interview, you can tell what the benefits of clerking are. But what sort of change that you said, I think now's the time. It was a career-based decision. I knew that if I stayed in the clerkship too long, I would put myself in a very awkward position trying to go out to a law firm. And even four years kind of put me in a little bit of an awkward position sure. because that's four years that you're not taking depositions, four years that you're not actually standing in court arguing disputed motions. It's four years where you're gaining you know, tremendous experience writing and learning about the practice of law, but you're not gaining the practical experience that law firms value. And so I knew that if I stayed too long, it was going to be a problem. And I knew also that they're not going to give me his robe one day. So I had to at some point make a decision to move. During this period, because I think we probably have some listeners that are law students that are maybe considering what to do after. Were you concerned about falling behind in the race? You were watching your peers at law firms, going to law firms. Were you worried about that year or that two years after three years, four years? <laughs> There's a little bit of that for sure. And even now, I've seen some of my friends from when I was in law school or some of the people that I clerked with are like a little bit further ahead in their career, just mm -hmm. in terms of the timeline. But I don't think that it's something that really cost me anything in the long run. You know, I mean, people, we tend to practice 20, 30, 40 years. So being a year and a half, yeah. two years behind, it's really inconsequential in the end. 
And the amount that you gain from extending your clerkship out, I think, is extremely valuable. I think there's a sweet spot in there. You know, I think four years is probably unnecessary. I think one year is a little too short. I think you really start becoming good at your job as a clerk sometime after six months. And like yeah. you're really inefficient before then. And then like you sort of start hitting your stride in six months. And so if you leave at the end of a year, you really only had six months where you were good at your job. Right. As you know, I did two one-year clerkships and I always said the same thing. After six months, when you finally get your bearings and then you're ready to leave. And during my first clerkship, I asked if I could stay and they, obviously the judge said no because I was <laughs> terrible, but no, because he had another clerk coming behind me. But it is true. I mean, I would have loved to have spent, I think two years is the right time frame. Yeah, I agree. I think somewhere between like 18 months and two years is probably the sweet spot. Another disadvantage to a short clerkship, I think, is that people very often tend to go into clerkships straight out of law school. And the usual path is you go into a clerkship and then you jump into a big law firm. Or in Miami, a lot of people actually go into the DOJ as well, yeah. um, or you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office down here in South Florida. I think when you only spend a year in your clerkship, you don't really get an opportunity to gain a lay of the land. And so I saw, and for me, you know, sitting back and watching all these people do this, I got to see a lot of people leave their clerkships, go into a big law firm and not really enjoy it all that much. And they would go from a position with their judge where they had tremendous responsibility. Right. You know, they'd be basically, you know, law clerks are, you work a lot like you do as an associate in a firm. Well, it's not all firms, but you work very much the way you would as an associate in a smaller law firm, I should say, in that you have a lot of responsibility and basically the partners will tell you, or the judge in this case will tell you, this is what I need, draft it up for me. And so from beginning to end, that's your responsibility. You know, yeah. You're doing the research, you're reviewing the record, you're preparing an initial draft for the partner, for the judge. And then when you go into a big law firm, especially as you know a second year associate or a third year associate, you're not going to be doing that. And you're not going to be taking depositions. You're not going to be appearing in court and arguing contested motions. You might get small little bits of research projects. You know, you, here's your one issue in this large motion. I want you to research it and write me a memo on it. And then a senior associate's going to write a larger section who's going to turn that over to a junior partner. Yeah. Who's gonna, you know, and the process goes on and on. And so I had a bunch of friends from clerking who were just bemoaning the fact that they didn't really feel like lawyers. They're in mm -hmm. these big firms and these big jobs getting great paychecks, but okay. they weren't getting to do the things that they thought they were going to be doing. And so it struck me pretty quickly that that's not something that I wanted to do necessarily. Yeah. So I see the life cycle. I know you guys are talking about getting good at your job six months in, right? And so two years, probably the sweet spot. I see it also as part of the timeline of a particular matter, right? So if you're sitting with a judge, you get to see the life cycle of a case or two or whatever, maybe from beginning, maybe not to the end. Two years is probably a good timeline for that. So you get to see that too. Whereas if it's a year, you may not. And so it right. becomes a little more difficult. So you get to see everything and experience that as well. But you started talking about it, getting into sort of the difference in what you saw in your colleagues who were fellow clerks going to large big law versus a boutique. And clearly you ended up at a boutique, not big law. Mm -hmm. And so I think you started talking about the decision process behind that. I don't know if there's anything more to talk about and how you ended up here are obviously we benefit greatly from that decision, <laughs> but what sort of led to that? Because I had basically an open-ended clerkship. I had the luxury of being able to really look around and figure out what I wanted to do. And, and as I mentioned, you know, I knew from talking to friends who had gone into big law firms that that might not be what I wanted to do, but I thought maybe, you know, I could work in 
a small office of a big firm. And maybe that would be a good opportunity to still get to get all the experience that I wanted to get. So I started shopping around. I took about six months looking around at different firms. And I interviewed with firms in town that were, you know, ranged from boutique to, again, small offices, big firms. And one of the things that struck me pretty quickly was just the environment in the offices was starkly different. When you're in a big law firm, you know, both of you came from big law firms, the environment in the office is like, I don't want to say oppressive, but like it's heavy. They're generally not happy places. <laughs> some. Yeah, some. some. Yeah, you walk in, they yeah. say, we have an open door policy. And you walk down the hall and every, every door, door is closed. closed right. And it's dead silent. And right. people don't look at each other. Right? Yeah. yeah. You know, very, very serious. It just didn't seem like a place where I would want to spend a lot of time. And obviously, as lawyers, we work very hard and we spend a lot of time in the office. And so I kept looking. And then I was lucky enough to get connected with you guys. And I think my first round here was I met with both of you and with Scott. I think maybe you came in a little late, Brett. Mm -hmm. Jeff was just Brett was late. No way. No, no, not late to a that. particular meeting. I, I do not believe that's impossible. That. I was held that, up. That, yeah, exactly. <laughs> late is on time right. for exactly. me. You know that. So early come on, is don't throw that jab out at me, there, Peter. Early is on time and on time. We're gonna have to, we're gonna have to go back and look at the tape on that. <laughs> We can strike that. So I met with the three of you, and Brett, despite being right on time, was uh, <laughs> well done. I think actually Scott was probably the most like friendly and solicitous of the group. Jeff was just grilling me the whole time, and I walked out kind of thinking like I'm not sure Jeff likes me, which is funny because as we know, Jeff is really just like a really friendly and fun guy, and I'm not right. So <laughs> that's what I was saying. Like, boy, isn't that interesting? The initial yeah. impression. Right, right. Jeff it, likes to put that out there, but it's not true. Yeah. But you also, I mean, you and Scott were both friendlier than Jeff. That's for sure. Remember, just remember that. <laughs> yeah. I think Jeff was just sort of more like a business-like in his approach. You know, he's just kind of grilling me on my experience. And you guys were kind of asking more like general questions about you know, like, how did I end up here? But I had a really nice experience meeting with the three of you. And that contrasting with some of the other interviews I had done, like I already knew like mm -hmm. you know, this place is different than the other places that I'd gone. And I already liked the environment. And then I got invited back for a second round and I got to meet the associates. And the associates I really liked. I got to meet, I think my first round with the associates was with Lisette and Zach and maybe Haley. I'm not sure if I got to meet Haley during that round. It mm -hmm. might have just been Zach and Lisette. But, you know, I loved Zach and Lisette right away. And I got my first interview. I came in the front door and you shuttled me right into the conference room by the front door. <laughs> so I didn't really get to see the office. <laughs> The next right. round, right. I got to come into the office. And yeah. so I was walking around in the back and we have this nice open space where all the paralegals and the staff are just outside everyone's offices. And so I got to walk back there and see all these smiling faces, you know, and I could tell like it was just the environment was completely different than what I'd seen in other firms. We bribed them whenever anyone comes <laughs> in. Yeah. No, yeah. that's true. I mean, the culture and, you know, right yeah. now, having been here for a number of years, I mean, you know that culture is super important, right? Absolutely. Because what we do is hard and what we do is very stressful, but we don't need to have an oppressive, as you say, environment because right? it's just going to add to it. And I think the old adage with everything you hear in terms of culture is happy people, right? Make for better work and happy clients at yeah. the end of the day. Yeah. Because if you're not happy and you're oppressed here <laughs> working, I mean, if you're working in a difficult environment, outward facing is not going to be positive. Right. Yeah. And, and you're probably not going to stay for very long either. Right. You know, as you know, like big law, the turnover at associates tends to be pretty high. And that was something else that I witnessed, you know, having stayed in my clerkship so long, I was able to see people leave the clerkship, go to big law and then leave big law to right. go to a boutique. And I was like, I'll just skip the big law part. Right. Right. <laughs> right. 
Yeah. I mean, I always advise people when they're interviewing law students that when they're interviewing, we speak to a lot of law students to really look and listen when they're interviewing, not just during the interview, but when they're walking in the hall, when they're introduced to other people, are they introduced to other people? Do you see people walking by each other and not saying hello or greeting each other? There's so much you can pick up by people's body language and the way they interact. Right. If they can't be civil, to me, it's like when there's an interview candidate in the office, you're going to see people on their best behavior. Mm-hmm. In theory, it's not going to get better than that. So it could get worse. So that's a good point. Yeah. There's a lot of ways to judge a law firm. And the people that you work with is so, I was going to say important, but really, it's really the only thing. You know, it's not even the most important thing. It is the thing. You yeah. know, who you work with is way more important than what you do. And obviously, how you do it is important yeah. too. But, and I could tell how seriously you all took that aspect of it because one of the things you did, and I don't want to give away any firm hiring secrets, but you know, <laughs> one of the things you all, I guess you can edit this out if you need to. Trade secret, NDA, yeah. we'll have to sign an NDA, yeah. yeah. One yeah. of the things you guys did was, I'm not sure if it was after my first round or after my second round, but you had me complete this like personality mm-hmm. index. I thought that was very interesting because it impressed upon me that you take a person's way that they'll interact with everyone else, that that's a very important aspect for the firm. You're not just interested in whether this person is smart and capable of doing the job. It's really, you know, will they fit in well here and will they uphold the values of the firm? And that was another thing that I really liked about the firm. I mean, listen, we've worked hard to build an environment that we're both happy with and that everybody likes and appreciates. And we want everyone to value that and realize the importance of it. And that's why when we're interviewing someone, they can meet whoever they want. They want to meet with the staff. They can meet with the staff. They want to meet with lawyers. They can meet with associates. They can come back. They can call them. I mean, we want the candidate to come in with an open mind, with open eyes. And we want to know everything about the candidate. We want them to know everything about us. There's no benefits to anyone having the wool pulled over their eyes. You know, that's the worst scenario where you take a job and you think it's one thing and you find out it's something else. It's not going to work out for anyone. Yeah. Yeah, It's always good to obviously meet partners and the senior people in the office, but it's, I think, and you alluded to this as well, and I know Jeff did too, which is it's more important to meet people who are your peers, who are working there, who you're going to be working with, but also to ask them the questions and get some answers that maybe the partners won't provide you because we've been doing this for a long time, right? Interviewing people. And so we know what we want to portray, right? I mean, we're not worried with our firm because we've built the culture. As Jeff said, you meet with anybody, it doesn't matter. But there are firms that don't have that. And so the partners that are meeting with the candidates are going to portray what they want the candidate to hear. But the people that are working day to day or that may be your peer, you may be able to get some better information from. Mm -hmm and what day-to-day is like, and what you're really going to be doing, and what the office is like as well. Not just walking around, but also asking those questions. be important, which is why we've structured our hiring process the way we do it, right? You get to meet with more than just the partners at the firm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, We try to get you in front of a lot of people. Right. Right. So those law clerks out there that are looking, obviously, right? It's a personal choice. I mean, people, for different reasons, go to different firms, why there's so many, and that's fine. But Meet with people that are your peers right? and ask them the questions. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of times law clerks have a lot of student debt. Yeah. And a lot of times it's just, you know, it's purely an economic decision. And they're, sure. they're doing what they think is the best in the moment. But it ultimately, it's a little bit short-sighted because, you know, the problem with going to a firm that's not going to get you all of the practical skills that you really need to be a lawyer, again, you know, taking depositions and yeah. working directly with clients, writing your own motions, arguing your own motions 
is that you don't have ultimate control over your own destiny because you're not a fully formed lawyer. And so if you don't make partner seven years later or eight years later, whatever the firm's policy is, you're out on the street and you're not a fully formed lawyer because, I mean, I knew a guy, one of my friends from law school who as a sixth year associate at a big firm, had never taken a deposition. This is a litigation associate, never taken a deposition. I was like, man, what litigation are you doing? Yeah. I like to equate it to like sort of building a house or building, right? And in your case, as a law clerk, your writing and your ability to observe and learn from a judge help build sort of the frame, right? And every... Foundation. Well, it's the foundation, but also the frame, right? And then with each deposition or motion practice, you're building the frame and you're putting the roof on. And then the substantive law, the cases you're working on and the things that you learn along the way fill in the frame and the structure. And so for me, when I was a prosecutor, I would walk into court and try a jury trial with an arrest affidavit. I mean, literally, and interview the witnesses outside and then go to trial. (laughs) But that was the frame for me. And the foundation was I could walk into any court anywhere and be comfortable. Right. I could try a case and be comfortable, motion practice and be comfortable. And then coming into private practice and civil side was filling in, right, the drywall and the brick and mortar with the substantive law. Yeah. You know? And so that's the point you're making, which is figure out what you want your foundation and your frame to be. Get that, and you can fill in the substantive law right. along the way. I, I agree with that, Brad. I was actually thinking of that when Peter was talking about his clerkship before that. Coming out of law school, you can either spend your first couple of years as a first-year associate at a law firm, and if you're at a big firm, you, as Peter said, you're probably doing research and writing or doc review, or you can spend a couple of years in chambers working for a judge where you're kind of more one-on-one or as a prosecutor where you're literally trying cases as a first year yeah. and those formative years. And after one or two years of that, your peers have been a big law for two years, but the advantage of the growth, the foundation that yeah. you've built is just so advantageous and so much more valuable that that's why if, when you look around the hallways here, most everybody, not everybody, but most of the people either have a couple of years in clerking or a couple of years as prosecutors or public defenders or something like yeah. that. And so yeah. It's just a great way to start your law practice. Right. And it gives you a lot of confidence as well. You know, I mean, I imagine for Brett, you know, coming out of trying cases where what's at stake is someone's liberty, like whether someone's going to go to jail, whether a victim is going to see justice done. Mm-hmm. And then you go into the civil practice, you're like, man, this is, you know, the stakes are low. <laughs> just money. You know, yeah. 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 People it's fight like, harder over money, believe it or not. Yeah, Right, right. Yeah, but it yeah. gives you, I mean, certainly I would expect that it would make you less nervous when you're dealing yeah. with just money. And it's like, so too with the clerkship, you yeah. know, I've spent all this time basically arguing, not arguing, but discussing cases with a federal judge every day. Yep. And so when I walk into a partner's office, you know, like, it's no big deal. Walk in to talk to a client about a case, no big deal. You know, like I'm used to having high level yeah. discussions about cases with a federal judge. So, I mean. I think we should get Jeff a robe <laughs> and we should etch his name in wood. Judge Jeff. And then, is that the, uh, okay. Okay. The, okay. A little too seal. far, a little yeah. too far, Jeff. A little too seal up on the wall. Yeah. yeah. Once your name is etched in wood, I feel like you've made it. I mean, that's important. So All right. we should do that for Jeff and get him a black <laughs> robe and make Peter feel a little nervous. I'm looking forward to that, guys. You know, my birthday is coming up soon. So uh, keep that in mind. Wow. Peter Clock, any parting thoughts for young lawyers thinking about whether they should clerk or how to pursue the practice? Yeah, I serve as a mentor to several law students right now. 
while I was clerking, I had a whole bunch of interns come through and I'm still in touch with a lot of the interns that we had. I tell everyone that you should absolutely clerk. If it's on the table, if it's in the cards, you should do it because you'll learn more in that year than you did while you were in law school. Yeah. So if you want to be a litigator, I guess I should say, if you want to be a litigator, you know, absolutely you should mm-hmm. clerk if it's available to you. I'm not um, sure I'd even limit it there because even if you want to do transactional work, the reason you document a transaction is because it's one day going to be the subject of a dispute right. in litigation. So I think clerking is a good foundation for anyone, but it is certainly more natural for, that's a, good point. for a litigator. Yeah, and no, I think that's fair. Pelt lawyers, Pelt lawyers, lawyers yeah, 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 same yeah. thing. Same right, thing. Right. You know, we had a discussion about this recently, you know, people who are sort of purely on the transactional side. I think we were looking at this like massive indenture document that doesn't oh, yeah. make a lot of sense. And, you know, I think like transactional lawyers can kind of like build these crazy houses of cards and like they know exactly how it works. Yep. And in their mind, this is exactly how it works. This provision relates to that provision. This clause means this. But like all you need is when a litigator gets their hands on that, and they're trying to make a case. They're just going to start. Po- it's like yes. Jenga. You yeah. just start poking away at each yeah. brick. Yeah. 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 And then despite the fact that there's some guy in the background in some office screaming like, that's not how it works. That doesn't mean anything to a judge when you're litigating right. a case. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, How's it going to read to a third party right. wearing a robe, right. sitting yeah. high on a bench? Right? Yeah. And we had a big contract case out in Texas. Basically, the entire case was like two lines of one provision of a 30-page contract. Yeah, two years and two jury trials later, right? Yeah. You mentioned, so two things. One was clerking, but something you mentioned, I just want to make sure we didn't lose it, is mentoring. So it's finding a mentor. If you have or know someone who's out there that's willing to spend time with you, I always recommend to young law students, take advantage of that. I know there are a bunch of people. I'll put a shout out to John Kozak. He may not even know this, but when I was coming out, he wasn't hiring, but he took the time to meet with me and we just had coffee or a drink and gave me some advice. And I still today value that and appreciate it. So thanks, John. Wow. <laughs> Shout out to I'm John sure he'll listen back. to this. I'm, I'm sure, sure he's, he's going to. Yeah. If yeah. he listens to this podcast, he probably didn't make it this long. <laughs> Something Judge King also taught me about that is, you know, the way that you make a mentor relationship stick is very helpful. It's like knowing how to make a mentoring relationship stick is very helpful because people are very happy to give you advice generally. You know, like a lawyer will usually be willing to spend a few minutes talking to you and just give you their ideas about what you should do or what you might consider doing. And that might be the end of it. And then you never hear from them again. You don't stay in touch with them. But what you got to do is you take that advice and you implement it in some way, or at least you try to implement it. And then you report back to the person what you did. And then that keeps a back and forth going between you and them. And it gets them and they're already invested in you because they told you to do something and you did it. And now they want to see I mean, it's almost like a selfish thing where like the mentor, I mean, I don't want to call mentoring selfish, selfish but, right, but yeah. it's almost like they want to see their own advice succeed. So they want to see you succeed. You know, also they might just want to see you succeed, of course, but part of it is just that, which is like they're invested because they gave advice in the first place. So all you have to do is let them know that you're following that advice and more advice will come. Great yeah, point. That's, great that's, point. yeah, great point. Uh, communication and continue the communication and staying in touch. I agree. That's yeah. awesome. This has been a fun conversation. Yeah, I've enjoyed it, Peter. Yeah. This has been great. We're great glad you're me. here. We're glad you're here at the Practice Podcast, and we're glad you're here at Bass Tamron. Thanks. Thank thanks yeah. for joining us today, Peter. It's my pleasure. And thank you, Nelson. Nelson, shout out to Nelson, thank our you. producer. For more information on this show and other resources, visit FastAmron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at Fast Amron. Amron.